Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers' Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 500 writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows of interest to you. I'm a writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, and other programs. I have a couple of cool projects out this first quarter of 2017 that I hope you'll check out. One is a Supernatural Western comic book series from Boom Publishing that I wrote with my writing partner, Ben Acker, and our friend, the TV showrunner, Andrew Miller. It's beautifully illustrated by Hannah Christensen, and the first issue is available in comic stores and online February 8th. In March comes the first book in a series of young adult novels that Acker and I wrote called Star Wars Join the Resistance. It takes place just before The Force Awakens and is about a bunch of kids who join the fight against the First Order. But mostly they have adventures, fall in love with each other, and get in trouble. I hope you'll check out both of those projects. We're very proud of how they came out. Let me know who you'd like to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, liking the Writers Panel on Facebook, and visiting writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Reading those reviews really provides a pick-me-up. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writers' Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! This is an amazing roundtable of writers. I'm lucky to have all of you. At a square table, it should be noted. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have you introduce yourselves so the listener knows what you sound like. And Dave, let's start with you. Hi, uh, I'm Dave Holstein. And tell tell the folks also some things they may know your name from. Yeah, uh, sure. I uh, or you won't know my name from the upcoming show uh, sure. of called "I'm Dying Up Here," uh, which is coming out on Showtime in June that I'm writing on, and uh, I uh, wrote on Weeds and uh, HBO show called The Brink. Uh, Fox comedy called Raising Hope. Uh, I write musical theater. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. These are all, all correct. Thank yeah. you. Erin. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Erin Cardillo. Um, and my, I'm here with my writing partner, Rich Keith. Hi. That's, that's me. I'm next. I'll tell you about me soon. I figure our credits are pretty similar. Yes. Um, Rich and I created a show for CW called Significant Mother that was a summer series a couple, two years ago? 2015. 2015. And then we just came off uh, being co-EPs on the second season of Fuller House for Netflix. And now we are awaiting to find out if our pilot that we just wrote for uh, CW gets picked up. It's awesome. To it's, win. it's great. Yeah, we were gonna we we, we were a hundred percent finding out yesterday, and now it's today. That's what it is all the time. Though, and maybe right? it'll like be tomorrow yeah. or not. Yeah, I'm going to start sending them pictures of Aaron and my newborn baby, and just say, "Look, no pressure, but do you want this kid to go to college? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> their futures are in your hands." Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah, CW doesn't care if a baby goes to college. No. no. Well, also, we have two babies. Baby in college is a great. Uh, CW pitch. Yeah. <laughs> Baby in college. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yes. Uh, Simon. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you guys. You too. Yeah, you too. Uh, uh, I, uh, my name's Simon Rich, and I uh, run a show called Man Seeking Woman, which is on uh, a channel called FXX. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a surreal dating show, <laughs> a comedy. Uh, and you've also, uh, you know, you've you've been around. You were on Saturday Night Live for a couple of years, yes. Yes, yeah, so four years at SNL and um, a couple of years at Pixar. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I write uh, short stories. Um, and yeah. That, that all sounds very time consuming. Yeah, well, the stories are very short. They're okay. like a couple of pages. It should also like three be, words. Yeah, stories. yeah really, yeah, a lot of blank pages in my books too. I actually, I remember reading. I read Ant Farm, which mm. was that your first collection? Yeah, that was my very, very first book. I remember reading that when it came out, and then hearing years later about Man Seeking Woman, and thinking this is a great guy to put on television, but this is the wrong guy to put on television. Mm. Like your your the kind of comedy you do is can be sort of absurd, can be sort of cerebral. How do you translate that to a TV show? Because I think Man Seeking Woman does that really well, but that seems like it would have been a tough pitch. Yeah, well, thanks so much for starters. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, Man Seeking Woman, is, it's based on a, a collection of stories I wrote uh, called The Last Girlfriend on Earth, which is uh, a bunch of surreal dating stories. Uh, they, the, the goal of the book was just kind of come at pretty basic dating situations from new points of view. For example, there's a story in it called Unprotected, which is uh, uh, about a teenage boy trying to lose his virginity, and it's uh, told from the perspective of the long-suffering condom in his wallet, (laughs) who's uh, been waiting for years and years to uh, uh, see the light of day. Um, And uh, yeah, so it was like like probably 30 or 40 stories in that book, and um, I thought about adapting it into a sketch show because I'd spent, you know, four years at SNL and that was sort of my background, but I decided it would be more interesting to try to turn it into a proper narrative sitcom, which is what we did. So it's it's a serialized, traditional show with uh, beginnings, middles, and ends and uh, character development, uh, but the genre changes about every five minutes and it's definitely a definitely a weird show <laughs> uh, it's, it's a fun show i like it a lot it's my wife's favorite show oh thank you and i just watched the pilot and i also find it very cool <laughs> you guys are really nice thank you so much my wife and i haven't seen it yet but we need a new show so i will be watching it cool um dave i want to jump over to you as we are talking about comedy um and why <laughs> look you are we were talking before you are a theater nerd yeah. Um, yeah. And you've worked on these sort of comedies that are not really down the middle comedies. I mean, Weeds and and The Brink uh, and the new one, I'm Dying Up Here, and even Raising Hope uh, is sort of a it's a smarter and edgier comedy than I think people gave it credit for. Is this the kind of left to your own devices? Is this the kind of stuff you'd be doing, or are you? Yeah, just yeah. Sort of- I kind of lucked out. Like Weeds was, um, I, I was a PA on Weeds oh, really? in season two, and I was like a struggling playwright. I moved out here, but I'm like, no, I'm going to still write plays, and I'm going to, I'm going to just send them to theaters on Craigslist and see what happens. And uh, I was really uh, just kind of waiting for something to happen, and. Uh, and something did. Genji Cohen, who created the show, her uh, assistant got pregnant, which was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Because <laughs> um, then I was her assistant for a summer, and uh, and then she was like, "Hey, you want to come?" Uh, I had a play in New York that she saw, and she said, "Hey, you want to come and uh, uh, do a freelance episode?" And, and uh, I ended up being staffed on that show for seven years of its wow. eight-year uh, run. And so it was just the greatest kind of happenstance. I ended up on this show that was staffed by playwrights who were writing comedy from character, which was something I really thought I was trying to do. And uh, it wasn't that sort of um, sitcom rhythm. And uh, in sort of following Genji's lead uh, and just sort of following where a character goes and and uh, finding all the comedy from, um, not situation, but from these crazy weed dealers, um, 
I think I kind of found the, uh, I don't know, that sweet spot. Mm-hmm. What was your comfort level with writing TV when you took that assistant job? Um, Had you written I was samples or anything? Everyone loved me. No, I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, no, I, I came out here to, to pursue it. I, I think uh, I just, you know, I, I remember when I first moved out here listing all the shows I'd want to write on. It was just every show. I just wanted to write on a show. I didn't know what I what my voice was. I didn't know what that was. And I think, you know, being on a, on a show like Weeds, which which was really dramatic and really broad and, and at times that you just sort of, uh, at least I really wanted to just always be on shows that rode that edge between darkness and light and, and, and funny and sad and uh, uh, have always tried to get on those shows when you can find them. And, and uh, I'm Dying Up Here, which is the Showtime show, I think is going to be right in that vein. And Showtime does a lot of these, obviously, um, but uh, which is, you know, about literal, literal comedians and like all their sad clown behavior. <laughs> and uh, um, so that fits right right and where I always try to land. Sure. I'm, and I want to pick up on that in a minute, but Aaron and Rich, uh, I would like to hear about this new pilot. And look, we're going to assume that it gets picked up. And <laughs> By the time this airs, we'll either be crying or That's celebrating. Right. I know. <laughs> we'll, we'll try to do an addendum. Um, but can you walk us through, I love to hear about the, the pitch process. Uh, what is this idea and how did you start to take it out? Because this was a tough year to take stuff out also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it started out as an idea we had a couple years ago as a cable dark half hour sort of like weeds ish called um, "I Love Your Cancer" with the R and cancer in parentheses. Yeah. Uh, about it looked a, really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. First thing we did when we took it out uh, for network, Warner Brothers was like, "Yeah, about that title." Let's, uh, <laughs> about the cancer jazz it in up. the title. How did you font that? that? Did you just reverse the R? <laughs> yes. I'm really curious. About yeah, we spent the, title like, page. the problem is we yeah. spent way more time on the typeface. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the cover page was brilliant, but then just blank page afterwards. <laughs> um, but no, so we'd had that as an idea of you know we'd seen all these kind of romantic cancer dramedies where you know the girl who's dying saves the guy who's living and right, shows right. him that life is worth living because she doesn't get to. And we thought they were hysterical. Yeah, and we were like, what if that girl? girl married that guy like they do in these movies and then didn't die and suddenly she's married to a stranger and then we added in the element when we started talking about making it an hour long or a network uh show of you know what happens to your family yeah like her family's basically been protecting her from all of their drama for years not wanting to dump in and like you know make the sick person have to worry about anything so she really thought she had this perfect <laughs> life and this perfect family and now when she finds out she's not dying anymore she has to deal with all of the truth that sounds yeah. great basically when she, was, when she was like 13 14 normally that moment when you find out your parents are screwed up and messed up and weird as you are and have no answers she got cancer and so they just went on pretending that they were perfect <laughs> as did her brother and sister and so the same week she finds out she's not dying she finds out her husband um, might be a Republican might have different beliefs than <laughs> she did because why would you talk about politics if you only have six months together <laughs> yeah. and that her mom you know and dad might not be in love anymore so just sort of this shit show where Finding out she's not dying might be the worst thing that ever happened to her. You could call your show "I'm Not Dying Up Here." Oh, and exactly. Then air it after our show, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, our and, new uh, title is no longer "I Love Your Cancer." It's now called "Life Sentence." Ah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, are you worried though that people are going to think it's a prison show? A little, yeah, a little, a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. That's why there's all the prison yeah. scenes in it now. <laughs> playing to reverse engineering. Yeah. No. So yeah. we, um, but the pitch process, we were going to. Um, 
like I said, we wanted to do this cable. Uh, half War- hour. Yeah, half hour. Warner Brothers thought that the cable space was a little bit littered with some some of these half hour shows in this tone. And are you? I'm, and I apologize. I'm going to interrupt a bunch of no, all of yeah, you because no I want to dig in on some of the stuff. Are you guys under a deal at Warner Brothers? Is that why you went we there? Just or had you a have blind a script deal with uh, them this year. Yeah. yeah. And so when we did a pilot with them last year, and our series so far, they're the only people Everything. that want to hire us. Yeah. Uh, so it's Everything out. we've done is with them. So. But yeah, so we had this, and they pushed us to do it as a network half-hour comedy and teamed us up with Bill Lawrence uh, from Scrubs and Cougar Town and Spin City and all those things. And he uh, helped us develop it out into a fun, quirky half-hour comedy that we sold as an hour drama to CW. Yeah. It was about, uh, we were, they, we had set up all of the comedy pitches with the comedy side of Warner Brothers, and then we were, the drama side was like, pushing us to maybe come up with something else to do to try to sell as a drama. A dysfunctional family drama. Yeah, they were like, why don't we want a dysfunctional family drama? And we're like, we're actually pitching that hmm. as a comedy, but for CW, because we'd worked with CW before, so they felt that that would be a good place to take something. And they, uh, yeah, they were pushing us to do a dysfunctional family show. So we were like, could we just pitch the same show? As an hour dramedy, mm-hmm. and we'll do some longer arcs sure. or something. And did you see through the half hour pitch, or did you just we did go we to? Went so you to, really did pitch it both ways to everyone. We yeah. did the half hour pitch as the hour. We just sort of right. talked more about where the characters could go, go. with the drama. But Bill also we was, sold it to. Well, we Freeform wanted to do it as a half hour, oh, and then CW wanted to do it as an hour. Hmm. So then we were just deciding: do we want to do an hour or mm-hmm. a half hour? And ended up deciding that we might be able to do um, a little bit more with the hour version. Yeah, and with Bill, I mean, he's such a master of pitching shows. We didn't really get past the characters. We had a whole thing worked out to pitch a little bit of the pilot and where the show was headed, and before we went into our first pitch, Bill was like, okay, after you do the characters, I'm just going to say that they get the pilot from the characters and they should buy it and then we'll stop the pitch there. So that's basically what we did. Um, and you know some basically of them would ask more questions. helps when you have Bill Lawrence of course. with yeah. you. How long did that pitch how long did it wind up being? The pitch itself? Yeah. Uh, 20 minutes? 20 minutes. Although at CW and Freeform because Bill is friends with all these people <laughs> like an hour and a half but like sure. 20 minutes of pitch content. Mostly just Just chatting. with like some, some dick jokes and talks about kids vacations and you know just sort of It's nice to have a social lubricant in the room. Yeah. 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 And in Freeform somebody was having a party in the hallway, so one of the executives have kept having to get up and like run out into the hallway and be like, we're hearing a pitch, be quiet! <laughs> and then finally just didn't come back in at some point. Yeah. It's amazing that they buy it after that, though. Like, <laughs> or make the offer. That's That never happens. Yeah. It was, right? You want these yeah. pitches to be in this sort of hermetically sealed environment. Yeah, perfect, perfect scenario. I'm, I think Aaron's more that way. I'm not. I, I started out in improv and sketch, and mm-hmm. I used to do a lot of live stuff, and I like it when it's messier, because it feels more real. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. I feel like you can't screw it up if it's already a mess. <laughs> yeah. Because if you, if, if you work, I mean, you guys have all pitched. If you have the pitch worked out, and you have three or four people in the room that know what needs to be there, you're going to get it all mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. I prefer to have, like, a very long script that we memorize very really? specifically. Do you, Dave, you're, you're nodding your head. You agree? Yeah, I've, I've done that, too. Yeah. yeah. And then I started specking scripts because I couldn't deal with it anymore. I just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like, sometimes I just can't work up the, like, 10-page document and memorize it. Right, and, uh, right, right. But, yeah. I'm hearing I, that more and more often, that people are just specking 
It's a crapshoot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the show, but I, I've definitely, especially on the network side, like would write up that 10 page. I don't have a partner, so it's me monologuing. Yeah, that's harder. I'm not classically trained, you know, so I get in there and I'm like, I got to have my 10 jokes. Yeah. You know? <laughs> as long as I make them laugh like 10 times, I think that means I'm going to sell it. So you, you would script out your whole pitch and then and memorize it and treat it like a Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I would, I mean, I would riff. I mean, I have some improv. Sure. You know, but yeah. like, but uh, I was. Pause for laughter here. Pause for laughter here. Yeah. Pause for agent laughter. After, uh, here, but uh, yeah, I'd like to hear from all of you guys about um, pitching, whether it's you know pitching to network or studio a show, but also pitching in the room. You guys have worked in other people's shows or your own shows where you've had a room. Um, what are what are some things you can some advice you can give to people who might find themselves in a room this season? Uh, you know, Simon, you're working on a show. You presumably have a staff of writers. What do you expect from them? Um, well, the, the writers I try to hire, um, they tend to be extremely confident and, uh, they tend to come, uh, a lot of them are, uh, playwrights, you know, who, um, really arrogant. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's like, they can all, uh, they, playwrights run their place. Structureless they, bastards. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they don't answer to directors. They don't answer to network executives. Playwrights, uh, uh tend to be extremely, uh, uh, self-assured. Uh, I, I would say is like a pretty true stereotype. Um, <laughs> and so uh, they're pretty bold. And then I, I hire a lot of prose writers. Um, you know, I've, I've written novels. Uh, a lot of the people in my room come from places like The New Yorker, or The Onion. So, you know, they're just as cocky and just as arrogant. Um, Sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's very competitive. Uh, everyone is always trying to... Uh, uh, get their ideas onto the show um we uh debate things how big is the room uh it's about seven people um and uh so yeah it's i I, you know it's it's uh it's the the great thing about it is that people pitch with total confidence (laughs) and their ideas either sink or swim and we test drive everything and it's very meritocratic in my room if one person doesn't like a pitch then it's dead I mean, wow. we really, uh, you know, and, and it's not like a producer's vote outweighs a story yeah. editor's vote. Like if a staff writer says, I don't think that that's in keeping with her character, then <laughs> we talk about why it's wrong and we fix it. Um, and uh, it's, all, it's also just very competitive. Um, uh, people go <laughs> off into their offices and I, I pit them against each other and I tell them to try to beat something and then we come back and we see who won. <laughs> Um, literally competitive like there's literal competitions yeah sometimes we give away prizes for uh, <laughs> oh best premise or best uh, uh, plot twist wow um, it's sort of like a, you know it's like sports um, and yeah when I when I go in a I mean when I go in a pitch something I always think it's great I, I always think everything I'm working on is great and then um, historically that's been proven false uh, <laughs> and only about you know 10% of the short stories I write for example get published um, but when I'm writing them, I love them. So pitches are easy for me because it's like if it's a new idea, I'm, I'm like shocked that they wouldn't want want it. Right. <laughs> and then when some when I pitch a show and nobody buys it, then it dawns on me, oh, that one wasn't that wasn't very good. Um, yeah. But by then I'm on to the next one. Yeah. yeah. Sure. But you can't think that ahead of time, or you wouldn't. No. Have yeah. To- Guts to go in the room and... We tend to feel that way during the outline phase where we're like, oh my God, we sold a cloud of smoke and mirrors and uh, (laughs) they're going to find us out. I think in this particular show we were in Aaron's dining room 
And which Aaron is where like, we tend to write. Yeah, I was like, I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're good at this. Maybe we shouldn't <laughs> be doing this. And then I turned to her husband, who was in the living room, and was like, the way we feel right now, if this turns out okay, remind us this is normal. <laughs> and if we fail at this, remind us that we should find something new to do. <laughs> but there is that every time, every time. right? And it gets, like, I yeah. think it's worse sometimes the more you go on because you have more experience, so you're seeing the pitfalls ahead of you as you're going rather than just going in with that blind optimism yeah. of whatever I do is great. Yeah. And you start uh, to like, you know, know the traps that you can fall into and you are constantly worried like does that seem arch? Is it hmm. do, you know, you're in a way when you first start where you just sort of or like everything is brilliant. Right, we yeah. can do that joke. Yeah. Sure, you have all of this conf- the confidence sure. of a playwright. I guess yeah. it is. We've mostly yeah. only written on our on our own stuff at CW. So you guys probably have a different experience. But CW is very big on every scene has to has to further the story. There can't just be a character development scene. Mm-hmm. And you know, like watching This Is Us, which I had to stop watching while we were writing this because it's ninety percent character development and ten percent story. You know, I tried to write more of those scenes and pitch those, and I was like, we can't do that here. That's mm. So that's an, an, another challenge is, you know, with ten characters constantly weaving and moving these stories forward. I don't, do you guys have more opportunity to on, just, like, yeah, sit yeah, with the I mean, characters? I've, I've, I've heard, yeah. like, nightmare stories from, like, friends on, on more uh, network shows that yeah. are given, like, a bunch of formulas that they have to hit. Like, mm-hmm. even, like, more prescriptive than that, like, every scene has to have it more than at least three people. You know, there must be uh, a scene in the middle of the episode where all the characters are in the same scene. But, like, all these stuff, and how do you, I don't know how you puzzle piece that, but, like, I tend to get on shows that are weird amalgams. You know, it's it's a comedy room and a drama room, and you've got comedy writers and you've got drama writers, and everyone has their own kind of things they want to inject into it. And Showtime, I guess I've spent more time at Showtime... It's just like, yeah, give us a good 60 minutes. Like, if this episode is more character-driven, that's cool. If episode 9 is more plot-driven, that's cool. Mm -hmm. But there's no, like, uh, you're not trying to hit every beat. But I will say, I mean, looking at Weeds and The Brink 2, these are plot-heavy shows. Super Mm -hmm. plot-heavy shows, yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, we could also do a really broad comedy scene in Mm -hmm. Weeds and also do a really serious scene in Weeds. And no one said you have to have four scenes that are funny, Mm -hmm. four laughs a page, and someone's going to die every six episodes. You know, like, (laughs) we didn't have to do that, thank God. Um, But That's uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, our show is extremely formulaic. I mean, like, it really is. And people are surprised to hear that because it's like, in a single episode, we'll have, like, Eric Andre will play a, a, a knight in shining armor and then a, a minor league baseball player and then like a Batman supervillain and then like an astronaut within like 15 minutes. So it seems like a weird show, but it's like slavishly formulated. Do, do you think because the show is so surreal yes, that you yes, have to yes. balance it with a more traditional formula? Big time. Yeah. yeah you got to hang in on something. So, I mean, yeah. you know, by the end of act one our, and our, and you know, we switch protagonists all the time. Like, um, uh, like this season, it's it's uh, it's a dating show. In this season, it's about a long term relationship. So half the episodes are from her point of view, and half are from his point of view. Uh-huh. But um, so we have the luxury of being able to switch our main character whenever we feel mm-hmm. like it. Um, That's pretty cool, which is I mean, cool. But yeah. but within that framework, it is like right down the middle. And you know, by the end of Act One, the character, the protagonist, has a big problem. Mm-hmm. And Act Two, they have an immature scheme to get out of it. Which yeah, causes yeah. major conflict between them and one other main character. Uh, they have an emotional fight, her low <laughs> point at the end of Act Two, and Act Three, a minor lesson is learned and tested, and there's a reconciliation, 
and growth. Um, so it is it is about mm-hmm. as by the numbers as you can possibly yeah. get. Um, was was this built in from the start? Did you know this formula, or was it discovered as you did the first season? No, it was discovered uh, halfway through the first season, or at least I thought I thought that we were doing it correctly. And by the middle of season one, I realized that our stories were often taking like second fiddle to comedy and spectacle. Hmm. And uh, I think that's why the second and third seasons are, are, in my opinion, so much better than our first season. Um, Because, uh, yeah, and then it took a few episodes. We've now made like 30 episodes. It took like five or six episodes for Mm -hmm. me to realize it had to go story first, comedy second, and, you know, spectacle third. (laughs) Which I think, I mean, that's, that's a good rule. Yeah. Your story has to come first. Depends on the show and depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, if you know, not if you're a stand-up comedian, you know, yeah. then you probably want comedy. This is not for stand-up comedians. Yeah. It's probably comedy first. Oh yeah, SNL, you definitely, and then probably spectacle second. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's I mean, story yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, you nobody, don't come out saying like, "Wow, the narrative in that sketch was really no, <laughs> no, not at all." I mean, some of my favorite sketches have narrative. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some do, but it, yeah, in general, I it's. Yeah, you and want there's also like, Mark Wahlberg talking to a sheep, which is and right, you want the sheep on right. the, and you want a live sheep, and it's cool, <laughs> yeah. you know. And, and like yeah. we would always try to put animals in our in our scenes. And I think that was the right. <laughs> I think that was the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, we 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 sometimes will put in animals on Man Seeking Woman, but that's not the well, it's, not the goal. I think, you know, it's like sometimes when there's no, not every show has a formula, but every show has a math to it. Like yeah. every show has yeah. like 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 Weeds was like. You kind of can do what you want to do, but Nancy, the main character, must be driving the A story. Like, must right, be driving right. yeah. everything. And if you mm-hmm. had episodes where she was kind of soft, it all kind of fell apart. Totally. You know? And um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah it's exactly. funny. Our, um, sorry, I'm eating a banana. Our half-hour <laughs> show, Significant Mother on CW, we had the exact same formula. We got stuck in a four-act structure, which mm. belabored it a little. Yeah. But it took us really about hard. six episodes to figure it out. And yeah. actually, um, some friends of ours who freelance an episode for us figured it out for us and sent yeah, us the like, formula. You know what the, we'd yeah. written the first three episodes, Rich and I, and they were writing, you know, after that, and they were like, what's the, for, like, what is the formula that we're doing here? And we were like, what's a formula? We didn't know, <laughs> we don't know if there is one, and they, like, read, you know, thoroughly read all of the scripts, and we're like, oh, no, there's a total formula here, and we're like, oh, yeah, okay, okay, good. Oh, we should write the rest of the episodes like that. Well, it really helped us. Yeah, it That's great. really, I mean, it's so rare that you see the stuff when you're inside it, right? Yep. You guys yeah. were obviously very close to it, right. as, as were you guys. It's only with a little distance that you can start to figure out how the thing works. Yeah. And I think that failure, however you want to put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We were going to nail season two. We just didn't get one. <laughs> we had it all, yeah, all we figured hadn't out. figured out by then. That was but our it, best oh, season. Well. I imagine it is the figuring out that helps you paint that clear target for your writers. I mean, this, it seems yeah. like that's why Simon, your writers can pitch with confidence as they have a very clear understanding of what the show oh, is. Oh yeah. They have set, they have set parameters and they're trying to, you know, mm-hmm figure out the most original funny way to hit that box Mm -hmm. so i want to i do want to hear from you guys when you whether you're you've been running a room or been in a room what what's the best way to set that clear target for your writers or how has that been set for you uh and you've had a positive room experience in that way Good question. Pause, I mean, making pause, Nancy yeah. the driver of the A story is is a big one. That makes a lot of sense for that mm-hmm. show. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've run rooms on on the brink and, and and I'm dying up here, and I don't think there's a there's a common uh, a, a quotient to a good day. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that like as long as we've inched something forward, that's a good day. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, there are so many times we'll start with plot and we'll try to figure out that jigsaw puzzle, and if that is getting traction great and if not we throw it away and we start with character and we say well what's a scene Mm -hmm. we would love to see with this one of 15 characters we have on the show and work our way there you know and it's just figuring out this jigsaw puzzle where you have to also make the pieces (laughs) you know yeah yeah Mm -hmm. are the are your expectations as the person running the room the same on say the brink and i'm dying up here yeah, I mean, you know, it's different because I'm, like, the number two on a show. I'm not the guy right. running the show, but, like, my job is to give the showrunner something that, like, they're happy with. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I tend to be on shows where, where the showrunner either loves their family or hates their disease that they currently have. Uh, that's not as dark as it sounded. Um, <laughs> and uh, and that just means I end up running things sometimes. And Like uh, they want to go home. Right? Yeah, they want to go home and see their family or yeah. they just had a lung transplant. Like, you know, it's oh just God. one of those things that yeah. like just kind of <laughs> just happens and you end up having cool. to like sit in the driver's seat and like, all right, well, I got to make someone else happy. That's not so. Yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, what was the question? <laughs> uh, I want to hear about Fuller House, you guys. Yeah. What was the experience like for you, you know, especially coming off of having your own show? Yeah. What did you expect and what was expected of you? Well, it was really interesting because before we did our show on CW, we had not written on a staff before. Um, We'd written features and And Rich had done a bunch of uh, sketch and we'd written spec pilots. But uh, we had the fluke opportunity of getting our show, our first show that we wrote on air. And we wrote six. Six and a half. Yeah, seven out of the nine episodes Mm -hmm. ourselves because we didn't have the money for a staff. So we hired some freelancers um, for two episodes, but that was all we could afford and do on our first show. So we didn't have a room, really. And so going on to Fuller House, which was such a, like, well-oiled machine. And an old school, like 13 people in a room. Old school, yeah. 13. Yeah. Huge room. For how many episodes? For 13. Wow. Yeah. And, um, yeah, because there were a few teams. So, uh, yeah. But Jeff Franklin, who's the showrunner of that, has been doing this since (laughs) Laverne and Shirley, I think, was his first show. So it's still run like an old... It was really fascinating. I mean, Bob Boyette was, like, in our room, like, hanging out and, like, telling stories. And that was so cool just to sort of, you know, having grown up with... Not only Fuller House, but before that, you know, some of those I'm curious, the, the cause like, syndicated shows yeah. when I was young. I'm yeah. curious, every room I, I feel like is very different. Like, you know, some use whiteboards, some use uh, right. magnets or whatever. And I think, like, the the sort of era the showrunner began writing in generally speaks to that. I'm just kind of curious, yeah. like, how did that affect Fuller House? Well, he still he, said pencil a lot. Like, we like pencil, yeah. a draft. pencil a draft. And nobody knew what that meant. We were like, what does that mean? There's a writer there, Marsh McCall, who ran Just Shoot Me. I mean, he's been around uh-huh. forever. Yeah. And he was like, that's before my time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not that Marsh is old. Marsh is not. But he's yeah. just been around long enough that you'd think if the term pencil had been yeah. used yeah. recently. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, Jeff was saying that they used to pencil Wait. in the edits and then oh, send it to their secretaries, and their secretaries would, would type, type it, up it up at night. Wow. And send yeah, it to the copy uh, shop. The script girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. The script yeah. girls yeah. back in the day. You kept calling me a script girl, and I was like, what is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, Wait, this is very interesting. Yeah. I, I want to hear about this because I have never, I'm always interested in the nuts and bolts of the room, the sort of uh, nerdy process stuff, but I've never thought about it as generations. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. So how has it been for the rest of you? Like, you know, Weeds was how long ago? 15 years ago now? 10 uh, years ago? I believe ago? it was uh, our last episode was 2012, so maybe five <laughs> But I mean, ago. the <laughs> first season, it was on for a long it was, time. It was 2005. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. So, uh, and, and Genji had been sort of on network sitcoms before that. Yeah, well, she started in, like, multicam. Right. Her brother created Will and Grace. I mean, she, she started uh, in very classic. I never so, put those Cohans together. Oh, yes. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yes. <laughs> so there you go. And then her father, Buzz Cohan, was, like, yeah. classic, uh, you know, oh, television wow. writer. Um, so how did she... What did, sorry, what, what did he do? I don't know. Buzz? Yeah, um, I, I feel like him. he did mostly awards shows and stuff okay. like that. Oh, I don't know. Right. Is he like a producer? Yeah, and, and a writer. He, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so she had... Uh, I mean, her rooms began very... Uh, with a lot of, with more, I think, multi-cam writers than we ended up with at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. And at the show actually gets much darker, so I think that makes a lot of sense. But you... When all the playwrights come in. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, just, just, just to zoom out for a second, like, I, I've been weird enough to work on, like, network, network comedy, premium comedy, premium drama, basic dramedy. Like, they're all different rooms. Yeah. They're all weird beasts. And nobody has a Bible that says, this is how you start a room. Right. So it's kind of like just going off the taste of the showrunner and like Genji came from comedy so you had a drama essentially being written by a comedy room so you would do page by page line by line um, sort of uh, joke combing you know like as if it were a comedy but then you would have to but then you wouldn't you couldn't really group write scenes like a comedy because the scenes were dramatic and you just can't do that as well so, you know, that was that. And, like, I'm Dying Up Here is a bunch of comedy writers mixed with drama writers. And uh, so you get a lot of joke pitches, and then you get a lot of people going out to farm out scenes that are, uh, you know, purely dramatic. So it's it's all different depending on mm-hmm. the guy who's kind of doing it. But Right. Yeah. And also, you know, you have to, you have to pick a lane. Uh, so it's like, on, on my show, for example... Uh, we are constantly cutting jokes that are really good, um, or at least I think are really good, because they uh, don't totally fit in with the mission statement of our show. Uh, for example, one of the rules on our show is that none of the characters can ever make any jokes. Um, you know, they can't ever uh, be funny um, because the situation... On purpose. on purpose, yes. Hopefully they're unwittingly very <laughs> funny to the audience through their flawed, uh, 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 you know... Actions, uh, but um, yeah, you can never have a character turn to another character and make a quip about what they're wearing, um, even if it's a really good line. Uh, so it's it, you, you have to you have to constantly ask yourself, well, what kind of show mm-hmm. do we want to be? And um, that that sort of lane picking, I think, is is a lot of the job of uh, of, of the showrunner. Sure. I think that's 80% of our jokes are just the characters commenting on each other. I know, yeah. <laughs> nice shirt, jackass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I mean... That's a real winner for us. Yeah. We have that. A lot, of, yeah. a lot of my favorite shows are that. You know, I mean, I grew up watching uh, three-camera sitcoms mostly, um, and I loved Must See TV, and I loved Nick at Night, and... Uh, 
those are always definitely story first, I would say. Spectacle probably dead last. Comedy pretty high on the list, though. Um, and, yeah, I, I could watch, uh, I could watch um, you know, Frazier's dad go after him for, for ten minutes in a row and not get bored. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I love that stuff. But um, you have to always... When you're when you're starting a show, think, well, what exactly, exactly, exactly uh, are we trying to be here? How long yeah. are your room hours? Uh, Ten to six. Ten to six. Yeah. Do you guys group right? Because that was a new experience for us on Fuller House. Obviously, having never been in a room, but for me, it was fun and a great learning experience. But not probably the way I like to write. Did you group write full scripts or was it punch ups? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, somebody, whoever was assigned the episode, would take a pass at the first draft. Okay. We'd like break story together and outline together, and then. Um, and usually like one or two lines from your draft going yeah, into yeah, the show. Yeah. It's the required rest taste. Yeah, I like, it was I, definitely. I, no bueno. I don't love those things. But, <laughs> yeah. but for multicam, I think it's necessary. I don't think the human brain works totally. in that rhythm and that amount of. And we wrote scripts, and I think it was interesting for us to see on a show that wasn't our necessarily our tone. You know, stuff would get through sometimes that didn't go through our showrunner that we thought was a little bit more subtle or nuanced than the show was, and it didn't work. Like, the show has a feel yeah, to it, like you're saying. Yeah, you get it on you know? stage, and something that you thought was hysterical in the room, because it was so smart or sophisticated, not ours, but whoever, yeah. whoever <laughs> joke. Definitely not mine. You were like, oh, this joke is so... And Mar- Marsh McCall actually, you know, being... Um, smart and sophisticated. Smart and sophisticated. Uh, there were a couple... We all thought he was just the... His jokes were so great. And then some of them, when we'd get to stage, the some of the funniest ones would just not sure. work well, out of po- the mouth of an eight-year-old who you thought was going to, it was going to play, but it, it didn't. Well, the rule that we saw, too, that, you know, I think you don't know innately on on the show like Fuller House is, you know, most sitcoms, especially multicam, are commenty, they're sarcastic, people lie. And on Fuller House, you can't lie, you can't be sarcastic, you can't say the opposite of what you mean, you can't be mean. <laughs> so a lot of these sort of comedy crutches that you have yeah. are not available to you. Mm-hmm. And so even when we would get to stage and try something out, you'd think it was funny and it just felt wrong in your gut. Even You're like, DJ, should, DJ seems mean <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden. You she's can't. dressed like Goldilocks and the Three Bears and she's just tearing that guy apart. It yeah, feels you weird, can't, you know? you can't right. do that, you know. So. Yeah. so how do you, as you know, a writer on the staff, adjust your voice? What was the learning process like for you? I think you... Take the part of you, it's sort of, Billy Bob Thornton said this about acting, but you take the part of you that's most similar to the show and blow it up and t- take the rest of you and diminish it. Yeah. And yeah. try not to feel like you're diminished. Yeah. And you that's hold a your great paycheck just a little closer. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, we talked about it, and it's funny, you trade in, you know, when it's your show, you have all the freedom in the world, but you go home with all the stress from the show. Mm-hmm. When it's not, you are really in a narrow window mm-hmm. of what you can do creatively, but you get to go home and not give a shit. You get to go see your wife, play with your dogs, go on a vacation on the weekend, and not think about the show until you go back. And you have to decide, I think for Aaron and I, we prefer the stress for the freedom, but a lot of people don't, and it really is a matter of taste. Do mm-hmm. you want to live with this? And for me, the stress is stressful, but it's also rewarding when you get through it. And for me, that lack of the right. reward thing, you know, that's like the, the stress is worth the reward And to we me. really like writing. Like, we like mm-hmm. sitting, you know, I was shocked, not shocked, because I knew what we were getting into doing a room, but I was like, it's amazing that we worked, you know, six months yeah. every day on this thing and did, like, no writing. Very I mean, little. Yeah. Very, Actual like at talking. the computer writing. Yeah, no, no yeah. like, sitting down and, like, crafting something between you and your computer and your, you know, like, that kind of 
joy of writing than yeah, a that's, lot of that's that's surprisingly rare, and I've 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 been shocked by that since coming to Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, um, is is how how many how few hours people are actually typing per day? Sure. Um, in the Writers Guild. Well, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I also found too. I, sure. We both love producing and being on set, and in a multicam oh, yeah. specifically, you don't. As a writer, like your producer title is purely a hierarchy. There is no producing. I mean, Jeff, yeah. the showrunner, is the producer. He's the only one on set. You're not on set even for your episode, except for the taping. Mm. So for us, I th- or for me, which isn't true on all sitcoms. Right. No, but on, mul- on but on multicam in general, you're mostly in the room pitching, and you know, on a single cam, you're on right. set with your with your piece. And yeah, I, we, we really miss missed that. producing. So that was another sure. reason that yeah. we kind of were like, oh, okay, well, it was a great learning experience, but you know, ultimately not. I think there, there is a caveat to what Rich was saying earlier of, you know, there's a Venn diagram, right, of like when you're running a show, when you're on a show and the stress involved. <laughs> and I think in the middle there's that show where you're not running the show, but you never get to go home. <laughs> right. You know, I've heard the, of those. Yeah, we didn't because you're, just, that, uh, yeah, you're there until bad. 10 p.m. Yeah. That sounds really right. Yeah. I mean, the only show, and this is why I've never done network cable since, network uh, comedy since, uh, is Raising Hope was a staff of about 20 writers. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And so let me just scare everybody. I mean, when I gather on the campfire. Uh, so there's, <laughs> There's 20 writers in three rooms. Wow! So you're you're really uh, a joke factory. I mean, you're sitting yeah. there all night, all day. Well, a lot of times we get off for dinner or whatnot, but you, you just how humane of you know. Them. Sometimes they would um, they let us out of our cage for meetings. Well, actually, no, they they throw meat in the middle of the room. Yeah, and then you just all you know. And that one vegetarian is just like, damn it. Uh, just, I don't know. You get the fatty part. And you're like, fuck. Why look at the fatty part? Uh, so, uh, what a lovely show. Um, but, uh, but I think just to emphasize it, like you can work. 12 hours a day on a half hour of television or you can work you know from 10 to 6 or uh, I've never been on a show that went after 3.30 that like you know you, you can still you can still fit all that in and but I think something worth kind of talking about is also the networks giving you a lot of lead time. Like Showtime gave us mm-hmm. twelve to thirteen weeks of just thinking time and writing time, which, right. which, which completely is so paid nice. Off. That's not no one is like uh, you're not shooting episode seven and writing episode you know ten. And that is just and, I mean that that uh, simultaneous writing producing thing um, that completely changes the math equation yeah. and the creative equation. Mm-hmm. And there's just no there, there's no comparing a show that writes before they shoot with a show that doesn't both at the same time. They're right. completely different jobs yeah. and they're completely different types of shows. On right. Significant Mother, our budget was very, very low and so we were writing them all but then we were also block shooting the whole season but we hadn't written the last two yet. Yeah. Mm. So on some days we we'd be shooting episode three and eight at the same time even though we were just sort of finishing eight and then we shot pieces of nine that weren't approved yet by the network and then right, the network right, didn't right. love the things Yeah, they we were like, shot. we don't like this part of, epi- of the finale. This Back we to the like, Future we homage. We shot that yesterday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We already turned a Prius into a DeLorean. (laughs) Like, we don't have any money to change it. So we're just going to keep it then. (laughs) On a very basic level, like, the more episodes you're doing per year, the less serialized it can be. Just the less serialized it it ought to be. uh, Because it's just very difficult. Because to to produce, for example, 22 episodes, that's so much writing. Mm -hmm. That is so much work. Um, I've never worked on a show like that. You can't plot that all out. You can. You can't because you need, yeah, you need to see what's going to work, what's going to sink and swim. And so uh, you've got to split up into different rooms, I imagine. At least I would think you would have to. I've never worked on a show like that. And um, that means that if the episodes aren't self-contained, 
there's going to be crazy inconsistencies. Like yeah. one room will have reached one conclusion about a lead <laughs> yeah. character, and then like another room down the lot is like, oh no, like we think that she's actually great at that, and her flaw is this or whatever. And- I, I will say the benefit of working that way was that we started off the season. There were twenty episodes, and the first ten had had uh, writer first drafts. Right? Yeah, and then the writer would bring it in, and you'd watch that writer's soul slowly die as everyone rewrote everything on screen word by word. Right. And then we just started to throw out that part of the equation and just group write every episode. Hmm. And literally, you'd have three rooms: Act One, Act Two, Act Three. It was a four-act show. You'd write Act One, you'd pass it to the next room. They would do mm. their pass on it, and it was a literal Henry Ford right, showrunner right. like kind of mentality. Yeah. Where you're, and, and frankly, those episodes I think are better. Yeah, the house is the same. They're way. so consistent, yeah. and they're that makes so sense. Yeah, because because then you have um, you have a quorum you have at least uh, uh you know everybody on the same now they page lack a about voice the, I mean, they lack a speci- they sure, lack the specific course, yeah. moments that everyone loves but they were really consistent it allows you know? yeah, it allows well, theoretically her, yeah it allows her plot and story yeah. and character consistency yeah, yeah, yeah. which are I, the ideally the show thing. already has a voice yeah, yeah, too yeah, I right? just, you yeah, have that it, pilot it lacks that uh that those more nuanced decisions one makes alone at right. night at 3 a.m than sure. making as a democratic vote yeah, yeah. or that well, accidental decision that your brain just improvises as you're blowing through something that you in a room someone shoots down before you have a chance I would imagine um, these shows that are group written, you're working off of a bulletproof outline as well. <laughs> no. well. well, nothing. I mean, you think it is when you assign yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then it's usually not. Yeah. And I, I don't know why I'm just repeating yeah, but I, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, you know, we, we put a lot of effort. I've been on shows that the outline you send the writer off with is 14 lines and it's like scene one this kind of happens scene 14 this kind of happens and the writer just kind of fixes it as they go through mm-hmm. and I've been on shows where you write a 15 page outline that is a novel and I think either way you get into a script and you encounter a problem and either you fix it or you make it the room's problem and mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. you know I mean para- we found just for our process it's things that paraphrase well in an outline don't necessarily translate when you try to make two human beings have that conversation <laughs> yeah. in a way that feels natural right. and and complex. And, you know, sometimes the, it you know, when you summarize it it sounds great and concise and then when you try to get those people through that moment, there's no way to do it that feels organic. Our, sorry. Oh no, I was going to say our outlining process has kind of shifted um over the years too like we've had to as we outline almost write the scene mm. like in, you mm. know, and like a long paragraph that we would never submit to a studio or a network, but just to make sure that it worked before we paraphrased it because we were worried about, you know, being like, this scene sounds great in this four sentence, and the network is like, we like this, and then Mm -hmm. we sit down and we're like, oh no, that doesn't work at all. We we pass back and forth most, like we outline everything together and we do the last pass together, but in between... We go back and forth, and it's so much more productive and enjoyable and rewarding if we're on the exact same page yeah. about what mm-hmm. every scene should be. Yeah, where we it, sort of have to be. Or just, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. It speaks to intent also. Like, if your intent for an outline is to make the writer's job easier or make or sell to a network. Mm-hmm. Right. I think a lot of times we're cranking out documents to sell our idea to the network, and then once they approve it, have to then kind of recalibrate it for what it actually means in a scene. Yeah, that's always really tough. Yeah. yeah, and you don't like you're saying you don't often have the time to do it. You know, in development, you have the extra couple weeks to do the long form outline to know. Okay, we can yeah. execute this. Then pare it down. When you're producing and, and writing at the same time, you don't have the luxury of exploring the writer side of it before selling it. A lot of times, 
you're like, look, this car is great. And then you yeah. open it and you're like, but there's no engine in it, but they already bought it. So we have to figure out how to make it run. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then things. And then, you know, you get into the situation I've heard from friends uh, where something starts to work, but for the wrong reason. And yeah. then you're <laughs> trapped. Yeah. And the entire show uh, is a compromise, you know, all of a sudden because something mm-hmm. wasn't vetted. It's it's such a nightmare. I, was talk- I, I won't name names. But I was talking to an actor. Um, and she was telling me uh, about her experience on a uh, an hour long show where her character um, changed drastically, mm-hmm. basically from episode to episode based on like which room it had been written in, <laughs> oh, wow. and it sounded like a crazy making experience, unlike anything I've ever heard. I mean. You know, so some episodes she was extremely intelligent. Some episodes she was monumentally stupid. Well, there's Sometimes, a show. You know, it's funny. There's a show I'm thinking about that I also won't name, but I know that there's two <laughs> showrunners who don't like each other. Yeah, and there it's a tough are, one. I know that one. Rooms. We all know that one. I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, I imagine that must be when you have two different gods telling mm-hmm. you what uh, the characters are supposed to sound like. It, it must never. Be, yeah, yeah, always better. I mean. True of probably every creative endeavor, it's always better to just sprint in one direction, no matter no matter what no matter what direction it is, even if it's like a dumb direction. Then well, it then, is. Uh, it's coming back to what you were saying about you know having confidence in the material, right? Is you you have to have that confidence, even if you're wrong about it in the yeah. moment. At least you're making a decision. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just fail hard and fast in one <laughs> in one direction and then say okay new direction yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. especially when you're producing your material for television there are so many people who just want to do a good job and please you and if you can't tell them what that is it makes their lives miserable it makes everyone's hours longer yeah. so you can put on you can take the mantle of failure upon yourself but at the same time you have to seem like you're sure it's going to succeed until it fails <laughs> yeah. so at least the people under you know they succeeded in their jobs and it was your yeah. decision that failed but you have to make that decision and nine times out of ten it ends up being fine anyway it's the thing that you didn't obsess over that you look back and are like shit that was why didn't i think about that yeah. so usually it's so sure. important yeah. it's so important oh when my the god writers yeah. feel a sense of ownership over the show yeah. you know if if, if they're yeah. clocking in and clocking out and don't feel a sense that like their burden is your burden to some degree. Like, I, I, I from my experience, it's been uh, bad on the show. You know, if, oh, yeah. if, if writers feel like they are responsible in some degree to produce what they write, if they are responsible for, if they're, they know their name's going to be on a script, if they know they're going to be in the editing room, whatever, it, it just brings everyone on the same page more so than, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I think that was the biggest thing we learned from, from staffing is, you know, I think when we did our first show, there's this desire to show everybody you can do it all yourself just because no you don't want anybody to think you're not capable and then you are on a staff and you realize how important morale is and how it really is everyone's show and the more selfishly the more you make everyone feel that way the more work you get out of them and good work yeah without paying them more because they because it's but because they own part of the show. And oh, they, yeah. Because the worst thing you can do is give someone their dream job and tell, and then make them not care. Right. Like, right. That's the hardest <laughs> yeah. thing to watch. It's like, I made it, and I really, I've just been beaten up here, and I just don't care if it's good anymore. Like, right. that's... Yeah, like somebody's yeah. writing on a yeah, network show and starts a blog yeah. to get out their creative juices. You're like, but you're, you're <laughs> I know, right, sitting right. in your dream job, and yeah. now you're having to come up with a hobby. The usual yeah. rule is that, yeah, whenever, whenever somebody uh, in your writer's room has either started a podcast... 
or a play, then you know you've lost. <laughs> those are the things they can contractually do. <laughs> because well, then you know that there's all this creative energy that isn't being spent, and you're not getting people's uh, A game. You're getting their B or C game. Or, or D game if they're also mounting a show at UCBLA and uh, you know, secretly working on a, a spec feature. Then you think, well... Shit, like my show sucks. If, <laughs> if this talented writer is, is doing all these other things, um, yeah, no, it's really, it's. I mean, I haven't put my name on a script in over two years um, on my show, um, right. and uh, it's it's uh, really important to uh, incentivize the writers. Um, What's the uh, name of your podcast? <laughs> <laughs> You're sitting back. Yeah, no, I get to, yeah, I get to do podcasts, and yeah, well, it's you know, it's really it's. It's important for them to uh, have their names on it because then they, um, you know, they they want it to be good. Yeah. They're, they're incentivized yeah. to make it good because they're, uh, you know, their name is going to be yeah. on it. So sure. Giving that ownership to the writers, like you yeah. guys said. Um, I want to drill down sort of on that script phase because uh, you guys have all done it. And again, whether it was, I'm, I'm sort of more curious when it's a, writing for someone else. What what can you do? What can a writer do to best serve his his or her boss when it comes to writing that script? Uh, alternately, what are mistakes that writers make in the script phase? I mean, here's something I don't know that I, I think there are. I think when you first get a outline that's been given to you by your boss and you've been told go write the script, you are editing a lot because you're hearing your boss's voice and you're going to run into a problem. The first problem you run into and you're going to think, well, shoot, I don't know how to write this, but I think my boss really wants this, but I'm afraid to email my boss and bother them and talk to them about this issue I'm having. And I have found that the writers who just, because no one ever remembers the outline once you get to the script. You spend months, weeks on an outline, you never remember it. So I always say, fix it. Like, just write, you're a good writer, write the best story. If it's good, no one will remember there was a thing you didn't do that you thought the showrunner wanted, or a line of dialogue that you kept trying to write the whole scene around because you know mm-hmm. it made the showrunner laugh. If you kind of, frankly, just tell your showrunner to fuck off in your head, I would encourage that because at least they are feeling like, I know how to write a script. I can write a good script, and now I'm free to write a good script. I'm not mm-hmm. feeling like someone's always over my shoulder trying to second-guess me. And then if the showrunner doesn't like it, they'll change it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah I, I always like it when a writer... Like, I want the writer to contact me because sometimes I feel like it will save us some work on the back end and save us some time. Because, mm-hmm. like, if, if I assign an outline and uh, there's a flaw in it, I want the writer to point it out to me and be like, I think this is a major plot hole, or I think these two scenes are redundant, or I don't think the end of Act 2 has stakes because of X, Y, or Z, and uh, I'm stuck. Help me. Yeah, and yeah. sometimes I'll say, um, no, I think it works. Do the, do the best job you can. <laughs> and sometimes it, I'm right, and sometimes I'm very wrong, and I've wasted his or her time. Um, but sometimes I'll be like, holy shit, that's a huge glaring error. And then we'll we'll bring it back to the outline stage. We'll 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 bring it back to the table. And I'll also say, that like, sorry. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'll say this writer wisely showed us that we were, have failed in our outline in this way. Yeah. Let's try to fix it. There's also that like brouhaha of talking about writing. 
You know, we're like, mm-hmm. you're like, you know, there's a problem, but you can't quite exactly eloquently say how, what it is. And then that guy also can't quite say it. And like, the only way to like talk yes. about it is through writing a scene. Absolutely. You sometimes know? though, it's the assigning of the scene, Yeah, you know, and that's as good as like, sometimes saying to somebody it's due, you yeah. know, it's, it is, <laughs> yeah. is yeah. At, and then they spend an hour and then nothing like an hour of panic staring at a blank page to force a writer to articulate the pothole yeah. or whatever it is. <laughs> totally. Um, on on Fuller House, where you guys were staffed, did you learn things about writing that you hadn't done on your own, or writing specifically for that show or those showrunners? Well, it was a huge learning curve, I think. You know, just from the figuring out the dynamics in the room to <laughs> writing in someone else's voice or pitching in someone else's voice sure. or tone. You know. And writing in a group. And group right. writing. Yeah, we learned a ton. Yeah. <laughs> all of it? All, we learned all of it. Um, and, you know, and ultimately sort of learned that some some of it wasn't necessary, like that it, it on some level wasn't a great fit for us, mm-hmm. like on that show. Even though we had a great experience and loved being there for the time we were there, we were sort of... I don't think, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I maybe even nudge us a little to do it because I thought it would be fun to at least once get paid to learn how comedy was written. I know that sounds <laughs> diminishing, but that, but that's where it all started. No matter you know if you're writing a single cam now or you're selling a multicam, it all kind of started there in TV. And mm-hmm. so yeah, I thought it, it would be... a great education. Yeah, it was a great education. I Yeah, I personally wouldn't want to do it again, not for, not for our lives especially, just the, you know, doing the rehearsal at two in the afternoon and then having to do the rewrite that night. I don't enjoy those hours. I don't enjoy that process. I don't... <laughs> personally find that it for like what we like to write yields the the highest quality results it's just it's a machine and you have to you know it it is the nature of the beast to have to turn it around but the reason we've written more hour-long dramedy or even half-hour dramedy is we like the more human moments the more nuanced moments the ones you can't do you know in that sort of time constraint and in that sort of structure and so i think while a great learning experience i think we learned more about room dynamics and how to be a boss, then I would say we learned lessons of how to write and now apply them in our writing. I would argue sure. that maybe we didn't learn anything in that in that aspect. I mean, I think aside from Certain seeing how other people's of- joke brains sure. worked and yeah. structure, but I think the biggest lessons for me were more in sort of how to run a show, how not to mm-hmm. run a show, yeah. how to be an employee, what, what makes you feel valued as a human being when you're an employee rather than a boss? It is a cliche, but you do learn from every single job. I mean, yeah. I, uh, the worst job I ever had as a writer was um, uh, two weeks on a project, uh, a feature that um, uh, I was probably like, uh, you know, who knows how many dozens of writers had been put on it before, before I got there. But I was there for a couple of weeks to, uh, you know, punch up the uh, uh, script. And um, uh, it was... It was so uh, fundamentally flawed that I assumed that they were in the early stages of, of you know, trying to sort of figure out what the movie was. Because, like, for example, they, were, uh, they weren't clear, for example, on who the main character was, which is a pretty big tell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I was walking around and I saw and, and, and I was like, this must be a new. And no, it, tens and tens of millions of dollars had already been uh, sunk into it. And um without giving away too much information, a lot of people were about to lose their jobs um, because it was such a, a, a huge expenditure. 
to, to, to mount yeah. this thing. And the movie was, uh, I spent two weeks there. Um, I, for one week, I, I begged, the, begged the director and producers, like, you know, you've you guys are going to lose your jobs. Like, please. Like, and, I, and I had no skin in the game. I mean, it was like a credit-free yeah, job. Sure. I was getting like a, a day rate. I had no, nothing in, invested in it. Um, I had my time on the thing was capped. Always I, trust that guy. When that guy yeah. comes into your room, right. and not, whatever he says, just go with it. Just listen yeah. to him. And I was begged them, begged them. I was like, you guys got to, you know, maybe this is the main character. And he likes a girl, doesn't like him back. Or maybe this oh, girl is wow. the main character and her mom won't let her be herself or something. Right. I mean, there's like, you know, there's lots of plots a movie can have. I just pick one and like, you know, like and, and like something. And they were like, no, we just need you to punch up these scenes. So I, I, uh, Spent a couple of weeks, or I spent, I spent the second week, um, mainly working on a novel, but like sometimes <laughs> like punching up these scenes with these like random one-liners, and it was like a, a right, very talk about ser- deck chairs, yeah, yeah, and um, and also once a day, um, I would just they had amazing food, and once a day I would just walk around and just like eat all the food. <laughs> I gained like ten pounds that week, and um, uh, they killed the movie, and everyone got fired. And uh, a few months later, why didn't you write funnier one-liners? <laughs> <laughs> and it's jobs. and it's just um, I th- I I think I learned more from that stint than from anything else I've ever done. Just yeah. because um, what had happened was there was a sense of fear yeah. that had taken over mm-hmm. uh, that that project, and everybody was afraid. Um, certainly, the people at the bottom were very afraid because you know they were about to lose their health insurance. But um, the people at the top were just as scared. And I think that um, fear uh, is like the enemy of creativity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, uh, Isn't it interesting how it sort of manifested itself? Yes. Right? Totally, like yeah. in being afraid to lose their jobs, of course, the only thing that can happen is they lost their jobs. That's exactly right. Um, Whereas if they had all sort of banded together and sure. said, Hey, we got nothing to lose. I mean, you know, easy, easy for me to say, like, you know, about yeah. these, you know, a, a lot of these people are, are, are crew members and like probably aren't even allowed to speak up sure, or else, sure, you sure. know, they'd be fired or something. So, um, but there were enough like uh, above the line people who could have and should have said something to protect the, you know, the creative integrity of the project. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it, it's, you see that a lot. You see that a lot. Um, Everywhere at every level, I would say there was uh, uh, on the on the brink on the HBO show I was on. Um, uh, we were renewed for a second season, right? And then we were canceled before we uh, uh, got to shoot it. Did you have to write it? And then it was- we wrote a lot of it. Yeah, oh, man, um, the worst. Was it based on the writing that it was canceled, or just based on unforeseen? It was well. It's a long, complicated story, mm-hmm. but the uh, uh, a lot of politics. Um, uh, the second season of that show uh, began with the death of Vladimir Putin and mm. I think we flew a little close to the sun mm. I think that we were going to piss a lot of people off and uh, it was it's hard to do political satire and uh, I think and, and, and like really toothy political satire and our criticism from season one is we weren't um, harsh enough mm-hmm. and so we wrote a season two that I thought was fantastic like I think we fixed a lot of issues we had and uh, and I think we just we're getting a little too real. Um, but the point of the story is not to say all that stuff. I'm, I mean, yeah, I'm glad we killed Putin, but otherwise, uh, <laughs> was that when the moment I knew our show was, was doomed was when my 
uh, New York Times account the HBO was paying for stopped working one day. <laughs> and this was a full six weeks before we got canceled. Oh, but that's hilarious. I knew from that moment on and I was running the room so I was also like having to like keep this air of like all right guys we got to keep now I know they haven't officially picked us up <laughs> you know but, <laughs> but and I st- we're still on our weeklies but if we just keep working on this document I'm sure we'll hear back from them soon you know <laughs> and I just but I knew it was like having a it was a, it was a weird experience that whole thing but uh, yeah no that's really brutal sometimes when the writing's on the wall though it can be exhilarating and <laughs> thrilling I mean like that's why I love pitching shows yeah. because, um, you know, I go, I, I go in with such excitement because it's, I just, uh, it's an, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a chance to, to basically tell a story exactly the way mm-hmm. you want it without any kind of interference. And you have a captive audience. They need to listen to you until yeah. it's, you know, they yeah. can talk about like their, you know, their, their kids at Harvard Westlake for a few minutes at the top. <laughs> they can talk about, you know, where, where they're staying in Maui at the, at the end. But in the middle, they have to like listen to your story. Mm-hmm. And the worst thing that can happen is it doesn't sell. But right. you, then you get to write another one. Yeah. Right. But you also it, it hasn't sold when you walk into the room. So you really can't. <laughs> there's no change. You know what I mean? We've been certain as actors, too. So for us, it's fun to just get to be ourselves in a room and like. Yeah. You can't if you flub the line. You're just being yourself. You're not messing up an emotional totally, moment. And yeah. there's two of us, so yeah. you know if one of mm-hmm. us just completely blacks out and has like a mini stroke, the other <laughs> one can continue on yeah, until yeah. one of us comes back to consciousness. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that's how fun. it feels looking at a blank page. It's the mm-hmm. same thing. It's like, well, I'm probably going to fail because just mathematically, you know, I've been doing this for X decades, and most of what I've written has been bad. But some of it has been good, so maybe this will be one of the good times, you know. And there's all, no way to find out till you start. And exactly. it's like being a writer is sort of like um, uh, I think I think being a, yeah being a writer is sort of like um, you have access to the slot machine, um, and every time you pull the crank, you mostly lose, and then sometimes you win. But you have like unlimited quarters, mm. <laughs> so just awesome. do it all. Do it all day yeah. long, and you know you'll mostly lose, and sometimes you'll win. I, I always thought <laughs> being a writer was just like always having homework. <laughs> Period. It really is. It really is. Yeah. It's like you have your dream job, but you have to. You do like you're always working. It never gets easier. Yeah. You yeah. can't really go to work with a hangover because the part of your brain that makes you good mm-hmm. at your job is yeah. shut off. Not to diminish the people that work in a bank, but I would feel like you could do transfers with just like one eye open if if your if your brain is mathematically inclined whereas right. when you're having to search for these things that don't exist in your brain yet and there's just like a bottle of tequila in the way from last <laughs> night it's harder to well, get it's, there it's emotional plus mechanical right, right? and and many jobs plus are drugs. not emotional <laughs> <laughs> um we will wrap up uh, but before we do um man seeking woman currently on Mm, yes, uh, and you guys picked up, got picked up for a fourth season. Is that right? Is it uh, four? You're telling me. I don't know. Thanks for. The, thanks you're welcome. For the Turn your phone on. You might. Have <laughs> I want to say you did. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, not yet. We um, but we um, we're halfway through the season. It's uh, on 10:30 uh, p.m. Eastern uh, Wednesdays on. <laughs> FXX. I don't know what yes. year this podcast airs. <laughs> Just wait a few years and watch it all at once. That's probably the way to do it. <clears throat> Seasons two and three are better than season one. <laughs> and really, it is a great show, and people should check it out. I don't know if people are watching it, but I know people are talking about it that I talk to. Thanks, so man. I, Thank I like it a lot. Um, you guys, you have, you're waiting to hear on your pilot. We're waiting yes. to hear. So by the time this comes out, we will know that you've <laughs> been picked up. 
Uh, probably for three seasons, like yeah, an unprecedented three-season three order. Minimum. Yeah. I think Bill Lawrence <laughs> demands that. That's right. <laughs> and Significant uh, Mother, our old show, is right. will be back on iTunes at some point. It's currently down while Warner Brothers susses out a better licensing deal. But <laughs> it will be in the world That's again at you. some point. If not, yeah. uh, email me and I'll send it to yeah. you. And Fuller House is on Netflix. <laughs> yeah. There you, you go. We wrote objectively the worst episode of season two. <laughs> with, really? four, with four live chickens named after the original housemates. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, if there's one thing that's not tough enough on that show, they have kids, they have a dog, uh, and then we added four live. We're like, what about chickens? Oh, man. Yeah, I think that was, that was our fault. Mistake. If not, we put our name on it. that was our fault. God, what was the chicken handler like on oh, set? You had, had, no, one per chicken is the IOTC rule. So we'd have wow. four chicken handlers. Four chicken handlers. Right, and then they had to do yeah, um, CGI because one of the chickens just yeah. was like... It's, it, was, it was a mess. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's, yeah. yeah, that's pretty good. That's yeah. I want to watch okay. that show about that yeah. show. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and Dave, I'm dying up here. I'm dying up here June 4th on Showtime. Awesome. Um, if you want to hear something I actually uh, wrote before then, uh, the, uh, I wrote a uh, musical uh, that we recorded as a radio play and released as a podcast. Uh, it's about the making of cereal, and it's called Wait, Wait, Don't Kill Me. <laughs> uh, you can find it on iTunes through the uh, Secrets, Crimes, and Audio Tape podcast. Uh, it's brought a Broadway cast, and it's a lot of fun. That sounds oh, great. Did you, you know what I'm listening to? Do you do music, too? Uh, no, I just do the book and, uh, cool and lyrics. structure and all that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, somebody else? Who, somebody else yeah, yeah. Oh, that's oh, yeah. Cool. Someone much smarter. Alan, Alan Schmuckler, the, the uh, famous composer, does all the, uh, all the music and stuff. That's cool. Awesome. Yeah. That's great. Worth checking out. Um, we'll wrap up as we always do by asking you guys what you are watching on television these days. What is starting getting him. you? We are starting with them. <laughs> what is getting you excited or inspired? Uh, what are you talking about with your room, with your friends, with your loved ones? Uh, Simon, um, I thought that OJ Simpson documentary was unbelievably good. Um, I love all all thirty for thirty uh, documentaries. I think they're all just fantastic. I, I it's one of the most monumental achievements of film i, I you know I, I mean i i remember watching hoop dreams you know decades ago and, and you know that took that took a very talented brilliant documentarian like five or six years to make and the fact that espn can just like churn out uh like 20 documentaries a year that mostly are in my in my mind like as good or almost as good as hoop dreams is completely <laughs> insane i mean it would yeah. be like if it would be like if, if if a company was putting out citizen canes every every couple of weeks <laughs> have you right. seen the one uh called free spirits about the spirits of st louis i'm at the end of it what in what, yeah. in what scene my dad was the announcer for that team and, really uh, and they do a reunion four years later in st louis at the end uh and uh, I'm, I'm just in the background hanging out and talking to all the players that's great yeah, <laughs> oh man I, yeah i can't wait to hear after that. i want to hear about that Nice. Uh, Rich? Uh, a bunch of different stuff, just because having a baby at home, we're just trying to fill time. But everything from, like, casual to narcos to the crown to night manager. My favorite right now, I know it's networking and everything, but this is us. I feel like I just, I grew up watching shows like that, like mm-hmm. Dawson's Creek and <laughs> and Parenthood. I was more grown up by mm-hmm. then. But uh, I just really like those sort of optimistic, character-driven things. And the thing I love about that show is every time there's an option to have a character treat another character with disrespect or to have lied or take the sort of traditional plot device and go with it they don't they go with the characters being honest and open and it's more difficult but i i don't know i find it very inspiring to watch and and yeah cool Aaron. yeah um i'm also obsessed with this is us currently 
um, and Black Mirror. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, really awesome. It's and terrifying. Terrifying. It's so scary. Well, only because we live in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the other, yeah, the other show that I've been obsessed with recently is Atlanta. I think they're doing really amazing work. Um, so different and interesting. Um, and then The Bachelor, you know, sure. just for good measure. Yeah. yeah. Last <laughs> night made me viscerally angry. Oh, yeah. yeah we don't have to talk yeah, about it. Yeah, we don't have to talk about it. <laughs> what are you watching, Dave? Um, the Bachelor. I, <laughs> Obviously, The Bachelor. I watch whatever my wife watches, but every, uh, every time I wake up, um, from the nap I'm taking during it. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, I'll throw out a show uh, called Occupy that is a Norwegian show oh, great. that is on Netflix right now. They can You can get it. It's a it's really I, I can't wait until they make the bad CBS version of this show in America. But it's about it's a slow boil of what would happen if uh, Russia occupied Norway. And it's told from a lot of different, different perspectives, but it has a lot of uh, poignancy to what's happening politically here to sort of watch um, a resistance grow uh, slowly into something that goes from being uh, conversational to something that's more militant. And uh, it's just a fascinating, it's the most expensive show Norway's ever done. I don't know if that's <laughs> what that says, but uh, it's a cool watch. That's cool. Yes, I've heard great things about that. Is it uh, in check it out. Norwegian? Uh, and English. Yeah, because, okay. you know, it's gotcha. a little bit of both. Gotcha. Okay. Nice. Thank you guys so much for being here. We Thanks really appreciate it. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 